0: Hey, what's going on, CNFers? It's your host, Brendan O'Meara. Hope you're having a CNF and good week. We're back for yet another episode, number 37, with Angela Palm. She is the author of Riverine, a memoir from anywhere but here, published by Graywolf Press. She's the second Grey Wolf Press author who's been on the podcast of Paul Vesicchi, Episode twenty-seven. So here we are. She also has an essay in creative nonfiction's joy issue, number sixty-two, titled Hierarchy of Needs. And it's a wonderful essay on, on happiness and it's uh it's really, really, really funny. Um so we talk about that and riverine and kind of go back and forth between the two throughout the whole conversation. So uh it's really really good and insightful. I think you're gonna get a lot out of it. Uh, Lastly, just uh, the usual. I'd love to have you subscribe. If this episode means anything to you, share it. Hashtag CNF has a Facebook page now. I I went through a period of time where I deleted Facebook altogether. And uh, I'm sort of back. But I'm back as the podcast. So, uh, go ahead and like that page if you wouldn't mind. And, uh, why don't we just get to it? I started this conversation by by asking Angela what impactful books she had read throughout her life that helped forge her voice as a writer. So here's Angela.
1: Hmm, that's a good question. So I think before I started um, writing newer stuff, so before I wrote Riverine even, it was um, Joanne Beard's Boys of My Youth, Zora Neale Hurston's Dust Tracks on a Road, and, um, David Shields' *Reality Hunger* was a little bit of an influence. Um, Wendy Walters' *Multiply Divide*. Who else? Um, Anything by Rebecca Solnit. Solnit. Mm-hmm. Um, Susan Sontag. All of her work, and it, it's really kind of like this essayistic influence, I think, combined with these really voice and place-oriented um, personal narratives that is kind of like melded into what is emerging as a kind of style for me, I guess. Um, even though I'm still experimenting with it. And after I, was, after I wrote uh, Riverine, I immediately um, read a book, and it was Ongoingness by Sarah Manguso. And I it struck me as, you know, working in, in brevity and, and collage and small pieces. And I thought, oh, well, instead of, you know, pouring everything out onto the page this is another way to do it.
0: Yeah, showing <laughs> so said, showing some restraint in some ways.
1: Yes, yeah, showing some restraint, exactly. And not only what you include in experience, but also in um, in form and in, in a line level, too. Um, so that was really a big influence on this new essay, which was the very first thing that I wrote um, after writing Riverine, the essay that's in the um, creative nonfiction issue, Hierarchy of Needs. And it does reflect a little bit of the conciseness, I think, that... Um, is kind of hallmark of uh, Sarah Maguso's work, and also extended extended collage. I guess they're not like really tiny pieces, but longer pieces that kind of work together into a brain. And,
0: and you said that uh, you, you mentioned a whole a whole bunch of writers that real that were you know powerful influences for you, and um and then you even said after that, like even working through Riverine, that you're, you felt like your your voice is kind of still still uh, still developing in some sense um so how do you see your voice as a writer and uh, to what extent is it um uh, i won't say fully formed but like where do you see yourself on a spectrum of you know that novice novice level voice and a level of like as close to mastery on the other side of the spectrum like so where do you see yourself <laughs> well, on that continuum? i would say i'm
1: far away from mastery i'm certainly <laughs> still learning and experimenting um and you know, Riverine was that book where I, I tried a lot of different things um, before it became a book, and they kind of came together in the book. I don't think it's a perfect um, execution of what I was trying to do, but in some ways, I really like that it's imperfect because to me, it shows that I'm I'm trying. You know, I'm trying this this style or this approach as an artist, and working through that even more so now. I feel like I learned a lot about how to write. And how to sort of express my voice along with my ideas alongside one another. Um, so I, I, somewhere maybe I'm in the middle. guess you could say.
0: Yeah, and and how, it's still being relatively the beginning of this year. Uh, how do you process writing goals, and uh, how do you sort of? Uh, and then you know, with that in mind, like uh, sort of like divide up the year, and and how do you how do you approach it? As you're trying to develop increasing levels of publication and mastery, and how do you how do you process that?
1: It's funny you should ask that. Um, instead of making like personal resolutions about myself for a year, which I feel like are always sort of setting me up to fail, I do make resolutions and <laughs> sort of little goals for writing, um, and I write them out specifically in like a very Octavia Butler kind of way, like on a little card for myself to look at. And they're just very tangible items um, that I can look at as, as um, maybe like a publication that I w- that I want to get published in, or um, a, a grant that I want to apply for, and just just small tangible things. And then within that, um, a little bit more abstractly, I think I'm working, um, you know, as I said, just to, just toward more understanding of what it is I. I observe in the world and how I observe it and what I care about and what is really worth putting on the page at this point. And, um, especially with respect to the state of the world and the country and, and all of that, I think it's, it's really, um, pushing me to think very deeply about intention and impact. So that's kind of where I'm at now. And I, what I I sometimes forget that I have this list, and I'll, I'll go back to where I'll find it because my things are always such a mess and like very unorganized. <laughs> I have really good intentions, and I get very unorganized. But I'll find it, you know, three quarters of of the way through the year, and I'll and I'll be able to kind of tick through like, hey, I did three of the, of these five things. How can I sort of push through these last couple items? And honestly, it's been a it's been a great way to organize my time because I feel like. It's just it's so easy to get pulled in a million directions, you know, we're constantly, especially if you kind of live in the online world, to some extent, the way that I do, I'm seeing, you know, everything that everyone else is doing, where they're getting published, all of the, all of the contests that are open, all of the um, sort of great opportunities that exist when you're part of those communities. And being able to exercise some restraint over what you participate in, I think, is really, really key. And to just focus on on what your, you know, sort of personal goals or success looks like. I think that people get really trapped into the, like, submissions game. And one thing that really helped me even be able to finish a book was to stop participating in the submissions game, which became really quite maddening. Um, And once I did that, you know, stopped trying to get all these one-off publications. And once I just sat with my book and said, how can I make this a book or complete this as a book... I got so much done and came out with a book and I felt like, you know, t- taking a step away from that was re- really useful and just sort of refocusing what I cared about.
0: What did that submission game look like to you and at what point and at what moment did you decide to take yourself out of that playing field and then and then do the focused work that turned into what 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 is an outstanding
1: book? Thank you. At first, i it was really useful because I hadn't been published anywhere and in order to get some credibility, i, I did need to have um some publications out there. and but but it was it's sort of addicting, I think I think mm. um I don't know if you feel that way but i i I felt that way. and I realized it it was just becoming um sort of crushing, you know, like the rejections are hard, and you know, just not feeling good enough. Like that wasn't a good feeling um for me. And so it just it just was time for me to step away, you know, once I felt like I had enough and I sort of lost sight of the reason I started doing that in the first place was not to just have an endless list of um, publications, but it, w- it was for me to practice what it felt like to have a successful short work and then build into a longer successful work um, from those sort of small successes. I heard this um, metaphor uh, from I don't remember who said it, but for book writing, which is that a composer who is going to write, you know, a symphony doesn't just sit down and write the symphony. They, they learn like each individual piece and then put it all together. Hmm. And I kept that in mind um, as I was sort of balancing that act between the individual submissions or the individual essays and the, the longer book work.
0: What does leveling up look like to you? And how does that, how has that changed maybe from early, early in your career to where you are? Where you are now and how do you approach that and, and dance with that requisite fear that comes with starting to reach greater levels of visibility with your work?
1: Well I mean leveling up that's such an interesting an interesting term because I've been playing so much Nintendo <laughs>
0: <laughs> the old Nintendo.
1: <laughs> the old Nintendo, the NES classic and oh,
0: fantastic <laughs> And what's funny about
1: that that's actually very relevant is you know when you level up, you still have to do all the work. You know, you still are kind of starting starting over. And though there are more opportunities, um, you know, more doors opening for me, which is very exciting. Um, you know, you still have to start at word one, sentence one. And so, I mean, in some ways it's, it's easier because you're not worrying as much about whether the opportunities are out there or wh- whether anyone will listen to what you have to say or, you know, take the time to spend with your work to consider it. But at the same time, you know, you're, you're holding yourself to a high standard and an even higher standard perhaps than before, which I think is a great challenge and a great pressure to have. Um, but also, you know, it, it doesn't make it easier by any means. Again, like after I had finished rearing, I went to go talk to an MFA program and I remember just thinking and saying to them, you know, we're we're in the same place now. You know, I'm back at square one and I'm thinking, you know... What am I writing? What do I care about? What do, how do these things relate to each other? I think the process just starts over and over again.
0: What was that experience like for you being in front of a group of people the way you were probably once sitting in front of someone speaking and looking up there and saying like, wow, I want to, what they're doing, that is what I want to do. And now you are sort of in a reversal of positions. What was that like?
1: Yeah, it's it's really surreal and it's, it's such an honor to, um, you know, to be in that position and a great, you know, I feel like a privilege to, to have had the chance to, to do that. And, you know, I think I, you know, for me, you know, I'm very, I consider myself myself to be a pretty humble person because I don't feel like I'm any different from anyone sitting in the room. And for me, it's important to just be, you know, very open and honest about what it's been like for me and, and that it's still a struggle like writing, you know, is hard. And any any kind of chance I have to, to talk about, you know, what's helpful or, or what I can share or sort of give to someone else um, to help them on their their path I try to do.
0: When you were starting out writing essays and even getting into the work that would turn into a book-length narrative, what were mm-hmm. some of the things that you struggled with early on and, like, as you're piling on new skills and then, like, how, what are the new what are the new struggles? So I guess like it's a kind of a two parter. Like, what, were you, what what was hard for you early on, and then what's hard for you now?
1: Well, I think at first, you know, you have your three, four, five essays or chapters that are really obvious parts of the story, and then, um, you know, when you're looking at a book like Narrative, you're sort of saying where are the gaps, where are the holes, what's missing in either the argument I'm making or the trajectory of the narrative arc or, or whatever it is, and I think. Pulling out those uh, additional pieces it comes a little bit harder than those those really obvious ones, and for me it was hard to sort of stretch between what was done um, and what wasn't done because it felt a little forced and it felt a little you know almost contrived until I really understood what 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 it was I was trying to write about or what it was that I you know came there to say and then it got a little bit easier um, so so that was a challenge or, or even like finding. Finding the thread between all the things that ties them all together um, was difficult for me because I felt my book has a lot of different pieces and it's trying to do a lot of different things at once to find a single, single thread to tie it together was, was um, something that I worked, you know, worked on with my editors, but also something that I really struggled with. And now, now it's kind of maybe like defining which direction I want to go in. Um, do I want to write fiction? Do I want to write another essay collection? Or do I want to write another memoir? Um, I'm sort of, you know, casting casting a net or rolling the dice and seeing, seeing what comes up. Um, and just kind of spending time with, with the stories that I have to tell or the observations that I'm making in the world and seeing, you know, what rises. Um, and that seems like worth spending time on. In some ways, like, I think, you know, the first book for me was the most obvious story I had to tell. So now I have to go a little bit deeper or a little bit wider, um, Mm. to see what else, what else is there.
0: Now, at what point in your generative process, whether it be an essay or something longer, do you come to the, the focus of the work? Uh, sometimes it can be Sometimes you have the idea in head and you, in your in your head and you write to it. Sometimes you think you've got something that's just cool to write about, but you don't quite know what it's about yet. Yeah. So like, how do you come to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's such a wonky, like haphazard process for me. I mean, I keep crazy notes in crazy places, and I've learned that you know, I, I, and it actually reminds me of the uh, Brian Doyle essay that was in the Creative Nonfiction issue about always having a pen in the pocket in case a book needs to be written suddenly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've learned to sort of grab the thoughts as they come. And that's kind of a, the starting point for me is these errant observations or, um, you know, a line that pops into my head and I'll start collecting them on the page and thinking in terms of, you know, what what is this about? What is the deeper meaning or what is the sort of human um, element uh, of the things that I'm witnessing and seeming to be attracted to on the page or in the world? And it really starts, it's like a little, it's like starting a snowball and just kind of rolling rolling it and seeing um, where it might go. Um, and for me, it's a trial and error process. Like sometimes I have, or I think I have a good idea or, or things are building into an idea and then it just doesn't work. Or maybe the, the argument is wrong or, or illogical um, or sort of contradicts itself. That, that happens too. Yeah, so it's it's a wild process for me, but it's an exciting one. I think, because I really love engaging with the world and sort of bringing um, these potential ideas along with me wherever I go um, and seeing how they how they interact with something and how a third thing can maybe be born from them
0: Kim Kankowitz, who is an essayist who was um, on last week on the podcast the previous episode to yours and, mm-hmm. and she and she won the best essay prize for for this issue um the yes. rumors of lost stars and like she had this essay kind of just laying around, and this goes to the point of focus. When uh, when Creative Nonfiction put out the call for a joy-themed issue, it like clicked in her head, and she was able to shoehorn this essay to the focus of the joy, and then it really coalesced the whole thing. So it's like yes. that's part of the thing. Like sometimes you might have something just kind of sitting in your drawer, but you need the right maybe an external prompt to be like, oh yeah, I can. I can write to that theme, exactly. it, yeah. So that's kind of the, exactly. the organic process of it. Yeah,
1: and a similar thing happened for me with this essay. I had written it, and then I saw the call for the the issue, the joy issue. And mine was clearly already about, you know, how how happiness is sold to us, or how we feel it in our lives, or how we don't, and what it looks like, and how it's, you know, sort of charted through culture or whatever. And it really wasn't until. I saw that word joy in the issue that I realized that this is the theme I've been writing on, um, in pretty much every other piece is the privilege of the pursuit of happiness and what that means. Um, so really I'm so grateful for that sort of magic that, that happened because it, I realized that it was going to launch a whole, a whole other series of ideas for me. So
0: with the, um, you know the opening passage there. It's a you know, the the line of dialogue from your son saying like you never laugh anymore, and, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what did you say? Even though you heard it, um, was that always the beginning of this essay, or or did it, that come? It was
1: always it was the, it was always the beginning, and it was the coloring books mm-hmm. um, that were you know were the best selling books on Amazon in 2015, and then um, the scene where I'm in the in the pizza place watching this live stream of people getting water in Uganda and thinking, what the hell is going on in this world? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And from there, trying to think through it on the page, um, which is kind of what essaying is for me. That little bit of conversation from my son, I wrote down that the same day and just kept coming back to it and coming back to it. And it really drove the other thoughts into, into place,
0: and what does your research process look like for for stuff of this nature? Because there there are some elements in it where you're you're reading other things that help inform this, and mm-hmm. and so how do you how do you go about you know, curating all the information that you like to help inform a piece of writing like this that's in you know three thousand yeah. words or whatever it is
1: yeah so sometimes I you know I, I've heard research or you know some kind of statistic or I've read something and I can't quite remember it is, and then I have to go hunt it down. Other times I'm already bringing the idea with me and I encounter something and then kind of email it to myself to look to look into. and um it's it's all over the place. you know I, I do a lot of reading and and looking for things that sort of speak to what I'm writing about and i kind of try to corral them into one place and read through all of it and see um, you know what takeaways i can i can get from, from everything that i'm compiling you know i'm not like a i'm not really in the library i'm you know an online researcher looking at articles and and whatever i can kind of get my hands on but i'm open to you know where the, wherever the information finds me and i'm always always kind of paying attention
0: how do you go about organizing all those all that information oh, that yeah. you find?
1: Well, I'm kind of old school. I, I print everything out and I mm-hmm. put it in little folders. Like this is the little folder about the hierarchy of needs, which I'm trying to figure out. And Then I write all over the folder, and it's kind of a mess. But um, that way, I can take it with me wherever I go. And I, I, I use uh, labels in, in uh, Gmail too. I don't know if anyone else does that, mm-hmm. but just trying because I'm always emailing things to myself that I want to read later or print out later.
0: Um, yeah, you know. it's, a, it's 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 a great. Uh, I love talking about that with people because, um, yeah, it's some someone might use like Bronwyn Dickey, who a friend who I've spoken spoken to a lot about this. Like, she's big into Evernote, and, like Evernote saved her life while she was writing Pitbull, and wow. uh, and uh, like and Phil Girard, Philip Gerard, Philip who, Gerard, um, who whose book his latest book is coming out. It's called The Art of Creative Research. It's like a mm. two hundred page book. It's awesome. Just that about. that great. I'm
1: gonna write that down.
0: Yeah, that that one's gonna be great. And he's on the podcast after you next week. And okay. uh, he's um and just hearing him talk about the research and you read the book and you you see what's possible and it just makes you want to go out there and just lead with your curiosity and see what Absolutely. you can yeah. pull pull in. And uh, yeah, it's a really it's it's great to try to cherry pick like how oh here's how Angela Palm organizes some work with the labels in Gmail and the, how some you e- ever know and some just bury themselves in microfiche. Like, it's really, really cool. Is, uh, is there anyone who, uh, any, any research technique that you've picked up from, from other people?
1: Not really. I, I have started taking, actually, yeah, and I don't remember who I even got this from, but one thing I found really helpful, especially for nonfiction writers, I think, um, is I take pictures of, of places and things that I'm writing about now mm-hmm. so that I can come back to them. Um and and smartphones make it so easy because you know it's like always on your person. Um, but I found it's really helpful in recreating detail rather than relying on just memory or notes. Um, and re- and helpful too, in putting me back in the sort of spatial memory of a place, which which does this whole other really interesting cognitive thing on your psyche. Uh, so that's that's been pretty cool. I also use um, Google Maps a lot. I was just talking with this guy, uh, Dave Ryan. Um, who is also a writer, and we were talking about spatial memory. And I was talking about um, a writing exercise, a writing prompt that I gave that involves drawing a map of uh, where you once lived and putting X's on the map for where certain things happened to sort of reorient yourself into experience. And he said that he did a similar thing um, with his students, but he has them go back and look at their homes um, on you know, Google maps where you can, you can see the landscape view and, you know, confronting change over time geographically and topographically has led to these really interesting um, essays. So I've been having fun talking to other writers about how, how we research place and memory and how they can kind of connect together to create different kinds of tensions across time.
0: A a great exercise in dredging memory I found is, um, and I got this from Madeline Blaze, who I took a memoir class with back in undergrad. Mm -hmm. And it's um, just writing out like linearly a timeline. It's real simple. But you're like, okay, in 1989, you know, obsessed with Ninja Turtles. And then like... But then that might lead you to, okay, I used to watch these cartoons with so-and-so, or I was playing Legends of Zelda on the phone with my controller. And, you know, it just, all of a sudden, these little things start cropping up.
1: Yeah. And,
0: uh, like, one little memory becomes a lead domino to others, and they go forward and backward. Like, I don't know if you've exercised that as something I
1: do. I I do do it a little bit differently, so um, I'll just try to list every single detail I remember about... um, a place or an experience or a person or whatever like what was the music that that was in the background what, what what's every physical detail that I remember looking at what was the, the mood like what was the weather like what was what was said what are the snip, snippets of dialogue I remember and I find that it is like that the dominoes effect where you start one thing leads to another and pretty soon you filled up a page or two pages of things that you haven't thought of in years. It's a really. It sounds like it's a very similar thing, but it's not necessarily related to a timeline.
0: Yeah, yeah. It just the the, the timeline. She just used that. It, this will just help with chronology. But it's right. funny. And it, yeah, and in the in the art of creative research by Gerard, like he, he going back to what you were saying about taking pictures, like he had a vivid memory of this. Uh, these I think people coming by in this train, uh, or it, it might have been the uh, RFK uh, funeral trains going by Mm -hmm. and uh, he remembers it being like a super rainy day but someone had taken a picture and it was like a perfectly sunny day or something so it's like so it's one of those things where like memory loves to lie to you and right yeah but like the picture there so you can play with that you can either just like eschew the memory altogether, or you can kind of like use the memory up against what actually happened as documented by film
1: oh that's brilliant i love that but it's so scary, too, because it calls into question every memory you have. Yeah,
0: which means it's like as, as someone writing any form of nonfiction, whether it's a personal or more repertorial, it's like you kind of mm-hmm. have to t- turn into a reporter no matter what and like yeah. go vet it out. And it's, uh, true. it's uh, I think Walt Harrington had a great has a great line. He's a you know, professor in journalism and in his essay, The Writer's Choice, I think he said like, yeah, uh, he said, your, your mother loves you. Check it out, so, it's like, <laughs> so right. you know yeah, so I mean it's just uh drilling it down like you you assume something, well, make sure get it on right. get it on tape or something, so when you were uh when you are I'd say a younger writer in your early twenties or so, what like or mid twenties, like what were some of those growing pains that you experienced that that all writers tend to go through?
1: Mm. well, I think the most obvious one for me is that. You know getting the music in your head to translate on the page was uh, a very difficult thing to figure out how to do I would often think I had a you know great idea or a great story and then I would take it to workshop and it would be just absolutely horrible and everyone would, would just tear it apart <laughs> um, and it's not even just like accepting criticism because criticism is part of the um, you know part of the process but not it, it, there's there's something I don't know, I think maybe a a maturity um, in writing, of being able to sort of be your own editor and see your work through eyes other than your own, that becomes a part of the the process of writing that I think you have to learn how to do. I mean, I'm definitely still still learning that, but I think that was one of the toughest things for me to sort of wrap my head around.
0: And when you were just starting out, uh, what did a successful writer look like? And how has that changed in, the, say, the last 10 years or so?
1: Uh, that's a really interesting question. I was, I was actually, this is a pretty extreme example, but I was just thinking today um, about some of the earliest books that I read from, like, recommendations, and on the, in this case, Oprah's recommendation, mm-hmm. and, which was in the 90s, and, and I didn't have access to, um, you know, anybody who was really a reader or or. A sort of intellectual, I guess, I guess I would say. And so when this, the list of books began, I would read the books. And it occurred to me today that I never thought of those the people who wrote those books as being real people in the world who, who you could someday become. Um, you know, I didn't think of the author as, you know, a, a place that you could get to it was just the, just such this foreign idea, you know, it was an island.
0: Yeah, it was something uh, other other people did.
1: Right. Yeah. So it's, it's really, um, it's really kind of amazing. I mean, I just see it so differently now cause I'm sort of, you know, in, in the world a bit, but it was just such an unfathomable place to be mm-hmm. uh, when I first started thinking about it. And then as I, as I, you know, kind of got involved more in the writing scene and started to have some, some publications and, you know, just engaging with the community in, in a different way, in a way other than just being a reader. Um, things, you know, became seemingly more tangible or, or reachable.
0: How important is being a part of a community in terms of our writing community of some sort? Like, how important is that to you?
1: For me, it's it's everything. I I mean... It's most of what I, what I love about writing is the community around it and, and sharing, um, you know, a, a very particular kind of joy um, with other people who love to read and write. And I think, too, it's, um, you know, although we love the times where we're in our writing alone and it's sort of reaching that magical place, without the community, uh, you know, to sort of share that with who, who cares, Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's everything. Yeah. It's like all, all my favorite people in the world, besides my, you know, immediate family, are are from my writing community.
0: And is that community uh, geographically local or is it more virtual for you?
1: Now that I've had the opportunity to to visit more writers and readers across you know, the U.S., I feel like it's growing. Uh, beyond what it beyond what it was, and that's a really um, exciting thing for me because it does continue virtually uh, beyond the sort of shared spaces of like AWP and readings and conferences. And it's been really one of the most fulfilling aspects of my life. It, it's turned out, and I think it's great to be able to have you know the conversations, the kinds of conversations that really excite you in the in the world, and to have the, the people to share those with is huge because. You know, not everybody else you know and love wants to hear about it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So, when you were when you were at AWP this year, the the writer industrial complex that it is, uh, <laughs> how do you how do you navigate it? it? It can be very overwhelming.
1: Yeah, it remains overwhelming, maybe um, in a different way now than than what it used to. The first time I I went to AWP, I. Didn't know what was going on. Of course, tried to do a million panels and did about half of what I intended and was sort of weirdly disappointed in myself with that. And then, you know, over time, it's changed um, into a place where I reunite with friends and um, just celebrate new books uh, from friends who who have books coming out. I um, try, try to learn a bit more every time. Um, I think now I'm sort of in this space of exhausting myself with social activities mm-hmm. um, as you do but it, it still remains like a, a really um, a really great place to connect with other people and to sort of um, build, build relationships with other writers I'm and much I, less freaked out by it than I used to be though
0: yeah yeah what do you tend to gravitate towards there in terms of things you want to see and and balance the the communal aspect of it which which is in a lot of ways in terms of getting published if you know that's you know far more important in a lot of ways you know this this game if 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 it's anything it's it's knowing people and uh that, that kind of gives you you know legs up in terms of uh slush pile stuff um funny, so yeah, I, w- yeah, so- I
1: never think of it. I never think of it quite that way because I always end up just hanging out and having a blast and meeting all these great, great people who I then realize much later, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> maybe are in those positions. Yeah, like I, you know. But I just never know going into it. Oh, and yeah, I'm and like, it's ne- really- and it's
0: never a good idea to like go. Oh, I can leverage this conversation over this delicious IPA over no, just, and get I myself just, published somewhere. I am
1: like not the person who probably thinks about that. I just. I yeah. just love being around people and and having a good time Do still yeah. always try to learn something craft wise mm-hmm. um or or community wise uh so I'm always kind of on the lookout for um what's what's new or or what are people talking about that um have to do with something I'm working on personally in in my writing um because you know like I, I do think there's always a lot of room to grow and learn from each other and I really value what other people have to say and um, I like going to the the readings the, um uh, you know people who who I admire and um, wouldn't necessarily get to see read at home here in Burlington, Vermont. So try to take advantage of those things. And...
0: I love Burlington, Vermont. I I used to live in Saratoga Springs, so we would you did? Uh, Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I used to yeah, we would occasionally make the make a day trip out of Vermont. It was still like a good 3-hour hoof up there but yeah, from Saratoga. But it was, uh, man, I, I what a cool little town. I mean, we actually really? up there for Halloween one time and, and got a... There was a zombie march down and I got some... <laughs>
1: course there was
0: yeah i got some candied <laughs> blood on my jacket from uh we have from... The
1: zombie march, the santa 5k <laughs>
0: um
1: the penguin plunge <laughs> the, the turkey chase <laughs> Wow. all kinds of holiday uh <laughs> events outside it's pretty fun
0: <laughs> so when you're uh, in the throes of writing an essay or a book um what does your routine look like starting from like when do you wake up and how do you pr- how do you start How do you win the morning so you can win the day?
1: Well, what I found is getting to work as soon as possible um, is pretty key and just focusing on um, adding words and adding uh, length and building on to whatever I'm working on. And by early, I mean like 9 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) I, I really love hearing about writers who get up at like 5.30 and I really secretly want to be them and just absolutely am not built for that. So I usually, you know, get a cup of coffee, I sit and I write kind of like in my pajamas um, for a couple hours and then I'll stop and, and do um, my editing work. So like one of my other jobs. And then I'll come back in the afternoon if I have time and revise. And then at night I usually read. So I'm, I'm kind of always reading three or four books at a time, usually some poetry, usually, you know, one book of nonfiction and, and a novel I kind of hop around, I I think I have like writer's ADD, um, Hmm. because I feel like I'm always working on a different project, unless I'm under a deadline I know is coming up, then I can really kind of focus and, and get it done. But that's the day to day of it, mostly.
0: And with your, with your editing, is that like, are you a freelance editor?
1: I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how
0: did you, how did you get into that and uh, start that as a, as a vocation to complement your writing?
1: Well I actually did that first so um, I, I was always just kind of a hobbyist writer I, I was never sort of I was never setting out to be a writer I worked as an editor uh, full time at um, an educational um, editing firm basically we did work for like Pearson, and McGraw-Hill, um, Prentice Hall, all, all the big uh, educational publishers. And then some of my former professors started hiring me to review their manuscripts because they were putting books out, and and had always known me to be a good editor and a good reader and a good writer, so um, I did that for them, and I, I, uh, I started taking myself more seriously. Then and I thought, well, you know, I'd like to write more too, more than just um, you know, kind of as a hobbyist writer, and I slowly scaled back my work editing and scaled up my writing time. Um, until I got to about a fifty fifty balance and I've kind of stayed in that balance um, for about five years now
0: And how did you put a value on your on your work like how did you come to what you Hey, I'm, I'm sure it varies from job to job, but like if first, maybe for someone who is looking to get into some form of freelance editing, <laughs> where you actually can dictate the rate, unlike a lot of freelance writing, which you're just kind of beholden to the magazine or right. newspaper. So, how did you come to an area of comfort where you're 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 getting some you're getting getting income and and everything and sustaining yourself that way?
1: Yeah. Well, first I did everything for cheap, like much cheaper than I should have, just so that I could get the job and prove myself. And then once um, I built up, you know, a clientele and, and um, you know, respect as an editor, I was able to charge more and sort of focus um, the markets that I worked in. And, you know, over time, having a lot of one-off clients um, led to having more um, long-term sustain, sustained clients um, and not needing to do as many of those one-off projects. And probably, I guess, after Riverine came out, I... Kind of leveled up a little bit my my rates to where they are now, and can be a little bit more selective about what I work on um as an editor and how much time I spend editing too it's you know it's hard to do editing and freelance writing and then also do creative writing that you want to publish um or sell um It's just hard to be with words in that way for you know twelve hours a day.
0: Do you find people don't value? Ed- editing at a at a high rate Like they think it should just be Almost complimentary
1: Sometimes that's the case But um, You know I try to be pretty clear with people Who think that, that this is A skill that someone has That you're asking them for Because you don't have the skill yourself um, And therefore it is a um, You know something that should be Valued You know for for a cost But yeah it's it's certainly um, a sort of a thorn side of writers and editors' sides of people, you know, wanting us to do work for free.
0: Yeah. And what's your what does a typical client look like for you?
1: It's still a little bit all over the place. Like I do some editing work for uh, the Harvard Business School, I'm working with professors there on their course module notes and um, some of their books. Um, and I also work with prose writers, mostly who people who are writing. First works of fiction or uh, non fiction
0: so when you were getting and getting back more to like uh, some of your writing process um, okay. when you were writing riverine um a, a friend of mine here in, in in Oregon wanted me to ask you uh, how you chose to structure it like in terms of the chronology of the writing like was it kind of scattershot and then you tried to stitch it together or were you able to write it kind of as a cohesive thing from beginning
1: to end no i was not able to do that at all um so i started with probably two or three essays that i felt were um kind of the heart of the book um And then I I wrote other essays that I felt like were sort of examining the same topics and places and themes um, and the same set of characters. And then I tried to put them in um, an alternating order of, like, youth and adult voices, which really kind of wasn't working. And I tinkered with that a bit. I moved things around. um, Finally kind of settled on... Or or no, what happened was I came across this... um, Book that DJ Waldy had written, and in, in the book was this line: um, "Every map is a fiction." And that line, which is um, the opening epigraph of the book, really became an organizing principle for, principle for me that I that I had been actively searching for and unable to to locate myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that that was really kind of the heart of the idea uh, that I was working with, which is that. I was trying to map this place where i had grown up, these experiences that had taken place where i had grown up and was finding it very difficult to do in a chronological narrative from start to finish. So what I had done is taken little cross sections of that place and time out and sort and looked at them individually. Um, so, you know, taking a sort of scan of, or a survey of, um, the religion in the area the the agricultural sort of, uh, state of the area, um, different pieces like that, and then organizing the book according to those um, different kinds of map, maps. But I think it's, um, you know, I think it's good to be always in search of an organizing principle or organizing thread, and then also be able to let go and um, get into a little bit of an uncomfortable place where you don't have the answers and and allow a sort of external magic or influence, um, enter your work and lead you in, into maybe a better place or a final place. I feel like for me it's about eight, but there's like a turn, there's a turning point where that, that thing happens. And then suddenly everything else begins to click into place. Um, and that definitely happened for me after that mapping epigraph,
0: in uh, I'm sorry if you had mentioned. I'm sorry if you mentioned it. But when in the process did you come across that epigraph? Like, at what percentage were oh, you okay. through the manuscript where you came across? That? I
1: was about halfway through.
0: Okay. And so then, at that point, something something clicked for you.
1: Yes. Yeah. It was it was this idea that you could look at a map or look at a place, and be misled about what that map or what a story of a place held and that there was something deeper to be found. And and I organized it around that, that layering and that peeling back of layers to get at a deeper understanding.
0: And what did that, what was the feeling like as you were writing it just before you came to that quote that you used for the epigraph?
1: I felt a little bit lost to be honest. Um, And a little bit like, you know, I, that, that challenge of having an idea and translating translating it on the page and having it not quite be what you wanted to say, um, and for me it was a it was a difficult place to be in that that sense of being lost on the page a little bit or or not quite being able to put into words or or, or organization the thing that you were trying to do, so finding that uh, epigraph was just you know finding my way really in the work
0: yeah some things like that end up being like a, a lighthouse in the distance like yeah you know, you're that's... like oh wow now i have there's a destination now and
1: i can't, I can't imagine now what the book would have been without <laughs> it it's like where was i going yeah. where else was i going if not there
0: yeah so when uh so after you 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 get you read that quote and then everything from there and it's like you're you're like gravity assisted running downhill type thing. So what was the, yeah. what were those mornings like those generative mornings? Like when you were hitting the keyboard and running after that, what were those days like?
1: Yeah. On those days, everything just flowed and, you know, gave me, you know, purpose and drive and motivation to keep going. And the the sort of memories that I unlocked even was pretty amazing. Um, You know where I had sat and thought, well, what else can I put in this book? What else? You know, suddenly, there it all was, Um, and I think this is so important to kind of you know take a half turn from where you are and look at something from another angle or another perspective to see it um, in in a fresh way, and it really allowed me to do that. And those those days were great. Um, There was a couple times where I. Um, would go, you know, rent like a really cheap little Airbnb and just hole up with the work because there was so much of it um, coming out and and to be done. And even you know, I would I would sometimes write till three three o'clock in the morning because there was there was just so much. Yeah, I can't wait to get back to that place again where the the work is pouring out. I understand what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> Do you have any? Um... Uh, for lack of a better term, like meditative practice to try to find that, find that flow state where you are, where you can sit in a, sit in a chair and sit still and think through things and generate, generate, a a, you know, an amount of work where you, where you feel just damn good when you're through.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the really important things I found is that I don't, you know, I don't do well with, um, Snippets of time, you know, 15, 30 minutes, an hour. I really need four to five hours of like no interruptions to really sit and get into those moments. And it's a very um, sort of visual process for me. And I I use a lot of this is a very weird thing, but uh, like post it notes.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I just start to sort of shift ideas around visually until. I, you know, I, I see how they're, they're working together and then can kind of move into, um, an essayistic mode or, or, a, or a writing mode, um, where I'm, where, I'm actually putting words on the page, but yeah, so that's one of my processes. I also, um, you know, truly meditatively, I guess uh, I go for walks and just kind of clear my head, um, which has this amazing effect of like allowing for a new thought
0: yeah. <laughs> once you've
1: their, their way
0: and is that part of your that that four to five hour block of uninterrupted uninterrupted time that sometimes you might skip out for for a walk yeah, to yeah in,
1: in, in a perfect day that would be what i do you know yeah. real life doesn't necessarily allow for that i have um you know two young kids who who often mm-hmm. um change my plans you know for example monday it was a snow day so my kids were home and i had just gotten back from being gone six days and had a ton of writing to do and of course wasn't able to but that's that's life
0: yeah and um in in reading riverine too um the you ground it in such a sense of of place like you just feel it i don't know you just kind of feel the geography and you feel the the weight of that river that you grew up on around it. And how mindful were you of trying to elicit the, I don't know, the, the, the pressure from the external world on you and how that influenced your life? Like, how how did you dance with that kind of feeling?
1: Yeah. So actually I was very mindful of that. And it was sort of part of that, this mapping idea too. And, And the river sort of runs through this book in the same way that the mapping does. And what I realized for me is getting across this very textured, um, experience of place to make it feel that way for a reader, um, was me going beyond this idea that experience happens in a void. Um, so experience happens in, you know, a very specific time, a very specific place and with very specific characters and getting down into the details and the sort of history and the, and the feel and the sense and the smell and, um, the sort of, folk tales around all all of the things that happened at that river was the only way to really um, transfer my sort of intimate experience with it to a reader who has never been there. And so I try to think of that as nothing happens in a void and how do you get out of the void by engaging with, with the world and in different ways and with the senses in different ways and with time and with place and with character. And so I tried to do all of that for the, for the, the river um, to you know, to make you just feel it. I hope.
0: Yeah. No. You. you well, mission accomplished for sure. <laughs> oh, good. <to> know. Good. Thanks. <laughs> and uh, and with uh, with hierarchy of needs too. What what I what I love about it too is like this this idea of like happiness you're trying to get at. And um, and uh, you know, some of the most happy people are the ones who are able to uh um, not seek not seek more, but actually just be content with what they already have. And you come to that in the final the sort of the final passage too. I I believe you're, it sounds like you're in Provincetown at the end. I don't know if you were. I
1: even, um, on set,
0: okay all right so near where near
1: Buzzards bay
0: yeah i grew up around there actually. oh you did okay. yeah i grew up in lakeville which is right off 495 i think it all
1: it's... sort of has a similar feeling around there right yeah
0: it's awfully bleak in the winter very gray and like devoid of tourism and yeah totally. yeah it's very isolated and so forth but it's like a perfect place for for you to kind of look inward at, at the at that time so like where where were you headspace wise as you when you were there and then how did you plan on what was your motive then to translating that into your essay?
1: So I I, re- I started that essay when I was there and I had, my son had just said the thing you know the line about me never laughing anymore um, which is the thing I had written down and brought with me. I was in this place where I finished uh, Riverine the edits were turned in. I wanted to start the year off by doing new writing. Um, and I was just in such a, such a mentally sort of sad place. Um, Donald Trump was running for president and that was a new idea. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really, really just upset about a lot of the things that were happening in, in the world and in the country. And
0: is that why you, he noticed that you weren't laughing anymore just the
1: i think yeah i think i had just gotten so deeply into thought about those things and was carrying it with me everywhere and feeling like i couldn't do anything about it um and it was you know it was a wake-up call to hear that from my son that he he wasn't seeing me as a person who laughed anymore which is was so it was devastating and i wasn't laughing at that little writer's retreat i was doing in onset um Massachusetts I was I was really kind of despair despairing um and trying to climb my way out of that
0: it echoed a lot of uh some of the early stuff in Riverine too about how you were seeing your mother and in some ways like the the indoor sweatsuits and like the going out in public sweatsuits and her like banging the pots and slamming the phone yeah I almost got that there was almost that like a mirrored thing there like
1: yeah that's you, a really good point um I hadn't actually caught that but you're right that it was um a sort of like coming into that place of being you know in my in my head and not um not engaging in the way that I wanted to engage
0: and you know as a as a writer in in these times like how how do you see yourself in in this in this period of history, like doing the work you're doing, and uh where does your optimism lie
1: hmm. well I'm, yeah I'm trying to find my 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 place in this world, and I think you know i I can write a lot about um class in America is one thing I'm really drawn to writing about and have um, some thoughts about and observations to make. And I think that that will be something, you know, relevant and hopefully valuable. And, yeah, I, I mean, at this point, optimism, you know, we have to kind of craft it for ourselves, I think. And I'm just trying to, as I did in the creative nonfiction essay, I'm trying to find the joys of daily life, and really take pleasure in, in existing in the, in the moment, which sounds hokey, but I think is a, is a real thing um, that we need, that we all need to do is and spend time with people we love and sort of foster, foster joy wherever we can, um, but still do work, you know, still do work that matters and that um, can help transform things.
0: It's kind of the only thing, you, you know, we have control over, too, a lot of these things that you touch upon in this essay is like you know there's a lot of things that are crushing you from the outside but what can you do among the sort of immediate circle and try to help you know radiate some of that goodness from your core out
1: totally and what can you tune out too you hmm. know i think there's a lot that can be tuned out um that is totally unnecessary noise and and being able to do that for yourself i think is really really crucial
0: Wonderful, and uh, I want to be respectful of your time, so let me just ask you where, where people can find you online and where p- can people get more familiar with their work. And I'll put a lot of, as many links as I can in the show notes to, um, to your work. where are where, where linkable, um, but where else can people find you?
1: AngiePalm.com. It's A-N-G-I-P-A-L-M.com is where, where my work is listed and information about readings I'll be giving and so forth.
0: Fantastic and uh, Twitter.
1: Uh, my Twitter is at angpalm. A N G P A L M.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for carving out an hour of your day. This was a lot of fun getting to know you and uh, talk about your work.
1: It's great. I love your show.
0: Oh, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, you're you're a part of the family now. So <laughs> thank <laughs> fantastic. You. Thanks again, and uh, we'll be in touch.
1: Okay. Sounds good. Right, Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Bye.